So today, I have the privilege of continuing our series on the gospel according to you. And this is a, a series that's walking us through the minor prophets, which are some of the lesser known and some of the more obscure books of the Bible that we encounter. And as a reminder, part of the reason why we're doing this is because I think it's easy for us to divorce the God of the Old Testament from the God revealed in Jesus Christ. And I think it's easy for us to look at the God of the Old Testament and create this image of a bipolar, malevolent, angry God. And then we see Jesus and he kind of comes and fixes everything. But one of the things that we're tasked with, specifically as Christians in the 21st century, is to be able to look at the text and find the ways in which God, as revealed in Jesus Christ, is present to us all throughout Scripture. This is a muscle that we need to flex, that we need to exercise, because I think it's probably a muscle that's pretty weak in most of us. That to be able to look into the Old Testament and see that God is revealed in Jesus Christ, that somehow these texts are still good news, is a muscle that we do not flex very often. And so to be able to recognize where Jesus is present in the Old Testament means that we're going to be able to recognize where Jesus is present in our own lives. Because I think this is one of the areas in which we are weak, and that is recognizing the places where God is present to us. So today we're going to be taking a look at the gospel according to Zephaniah. So right there, let's stop and pray. God, we do give you thanks for the gift of this day, for the gift of this space, and the gifts of one another, the gifts of our brothers and sisters that are present to us here in this room. God, we thank you for the gift of your word. So as we move forward today, God, we pray for new eyes. We pray for new ears to see and to hear where it is that you are present to us. Lord, may the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing to you. Through Christ our Lord, and everyone said, amen. amen. So if the minor prophets aren't obscure enough, Zephaniah is maybe the most obscure of the minor prophets, which is part of the reason why I think I was drawn to this text. And so if for no other reason than for when you are standing at the pearly gates and Zephaniah is there and he says, did you read my book? You can go, well, I heard about it and we talked about it. Um, it's a short book of the Bible. It's only three chapters long. You could go home today, uh, this afternoon, on this rainy Sunday, and before you fall asleep, uh, you could read all of Zephaniah. It would not take you that long. But we don't know much about this prophet Zephaniah. We don't really know where he comes from. We don't know where he lives, where he's going. All we really know is that he is this prophet to the people of Judah, and his life was couched between the fall of what we, what we know as the northern kingdom and this inevitable looming threat of the fall of the southern kingdom, which the southern kingdom is made up of Judah and the city of Jerusalem. And what we see is that the Jerusalem that he's prophesying to, it's not this rowdy, rambunctious, youthful, sort of rebellious group of Israelites that we're used to seeing in the Old Testament. By this point, the people of Jerusalem are old and tired and worn out. They've been beat up, and there's not much life in the people. 
they're battered. And to make it worse, they're actually living under the threat of exile. They've seen the fall of the northern kingdom, their brothers and sisters, and it seems like inevitably what's going to happen to them in the near future is that they too are going to fall under the oppression and the exile of Babylon. So let's talk for a minute about exile and what exile means, because I think it's hard for us, again, as 21st century thinkers, to really grasp what it would mean and what it would look like for a people to be exiled. For ancient Near East culture, their identity as individuals, their identity as family, their identity as a nation, all of it is wrapped up in place and in location, in a homeland. And so to be exiled away from your homeland is not only to be stripped away of your identity, but it's to be stripped away of your culture and your practices and your religion and everything else that you've known. As a post-Reformation people, it's hard for us to imagine a situation in which we would be unable to practice our religion because it's so individualized. It so relies on our personal devotion or our personal piety But for the Israelites under exile, the temple was no longer accessible. So let's talk about why the temple is important. The temple was not simply what we think of like our churches and our church communities. This is not simply a place where people gather in order to worship, but it is the place where worship happens because they believe that God was present in the temple and exclusively present in the temple. They had access to God in the temple in a way that they had access to God nowhere else. So to be exiled, to be drawn out of your homeland, to be stripped of your culture and your identity and your religion is to be taken away from the temple. And what this means and what we see is that this is not just a, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me kind of abandonment, but it's literally physically being taken away from the presence of God. So this is why one of the traditions that we see early on in Jewish and Christian culture is this practice of praying toward the East. We see this happening in scripture. We also see this happening in Christian practices throughout history because the most sure bet that you had of your God hearing you was to gather together as a people and to pray your prayers in the direction of your homeland. And maybe those prayers would fall on the ears of your God and maybe your God would come and act on your behalf and would rescue you and save you from the exile that you were in. So obviously this takes on some different forms and different meaning over time. But Christians to this day still pray facing the East as a reminder that we're not from around here. We say our prayers in a specific direction because we are anticipating the kingdom. That is already here, but it's not yet here. We pray toward God with our eyes on the horizon because we believe that there is a kingdom coming that is going to make all things new, that is going to set all things to rights. So this is the context in which Zephaniah is prophesying to an old, battered, downtrodden people under the threat of exile, which is more than just oppression. It's the possibility that their whole identity, their whole culture, the whole religion could be overthrown. So let's take a quick overview of the book of Zephaniah. Like I said, it's, it's about three chapters long, 
And there are really three main movements that happen in the book of Zephaniah. We have obviously the judgment on Jerusalem. This is some of your typical prophetic flair that we see in the minor prophets. The judgment of the nations is the second part. And what Zephaniah does here is this interesting turn where he places judgment on the nations, but not just on the nations. He finishes judging the nations, and then he brings Jerusalem right back into it. Like, oh yeah, and you too. And then lastly, we see the hope that remains for the nations and for Jerusalem. So let's start here with the judgment that gets placed on Jerusalem. This prophecy opens with some of this beautiful poetic language about the reversal of Genesis 1. Let's take a look at Zephaniah 1, verses 2 and 3, where he says, I will utterly sweep away everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. I will sweep away humans and animals. I will sweep away the birds of the air and the fish of the sea. I will make the wicked stumble. I will cut off humanity from the face of the earth, says the Lord. Amen. So what we see is this good, ordered, beautiful world that God has created is now going to be descending back into this uninhabitable chaos. It's descending back into darkness and to disorder. And Zephaniah goes on to describe exactly how Jerusalem's world is going to end, that these corrupt institutions, these unjust leaders, these crooked lenders and borrowers, all of it is going to be torn down along with the city walls. So next we see the judgment on the surrounding nations. And Zephaniah goes on by continuing to bring these accusations on all the people that are surrounding the southern kingdoms. So people like the Amorites, the Philistines, the Moabites, the Assyrians, and all of them, Zephaniah says, are going to fall before the Babylonians. And then Zephaniah does this weird thing where he turns it back onto Jerusalem. And it's as if Zephaniah is saying, all of these other countries, all of these other nations that are surrounding you, we've been able to recognize that they are not God's people. And because they're not God's people, they're going to receive this very specific judgment where they're going to fall under the oppression of Babylon. But to include Jerusalem in this kind of judgment is to say that the people of God have become so corrupt that they're no longer recognizable as the people of God. God can no longer distinguish between the countries that are surrounding his people and his people for who they are. So this section ends with the nations being gathered together in this consuming fire, or as the text puts it, this burning indignation. And then here's the twist. The this fire that comes, it doesn't come to consume and to destroy in the ways that we usually anticipate fire working, but it comes to purify and to unify all the nations. So what we see is that God's judgment turns out to not be a judgment at all, but a transformation of the nations into a unified family. So it's as if Zephaniah's prophecy is actually the fulfillment of God's promise to Abraham that I'm going to make you a nation that blesses all the other nations. And then finally, in this last section, we see that God restores Jerusalem. 
kind of. In the end, Zephaniah paints a picture of God dwelling among the faithful, and God is depicted as this poet, this righteous warrior that is celebrating by singing songs of joy over his people. And in this celebration, God intentionally seeks out and gathers the poor and the outcast and the downtrodden. These are the people that God gathers to himself and they are exalted in a place of honor. So typical, right? So throughout this whole book, through all three chapters, we have two very vivid, very intense images of God's justice and God's love. The justice that's enacted, it exposes God's passion to rescue his world, to rescue them from the human evil and the violence in order to reveal his love and create a world in which everyone can flourish in safety and in peace. So the question that we have to ask ourselves at the end of a text like this is, what is the gospel message for us? How is this prophecy of Zephaniah, this judgment of the nations, how is this good news for us? Because if it's not good news, again, to the oppressed, to the poor, to the outcast, it's not good news. If it's not good news to the immigrant and the refugee, it's not good news. So we're looking for ways in which this text, we can see the typical movements of Jesus Christ. Don't, there, this is not an overtaking happening right now. <laughs> well, it is, but in a good way. This is our missions team that's getting ready to head to Guatemala. <laughs> So glad that you guys are with us today. So again, how is this a gospel message to us? How is this good news? Let's take a look at Zephaniah chapter 1, verse 12. And there's this peculiar verse where he says, At that time I will search Jerusalem with lamps, and I will punish the people who rest complacently on their dregs, those who say in their hearts, the Lord will not do good, nor will he do harm. The Lord will not do good, nor will he do harm. So let's think about what Israel has experienced at this point for close to 100 years. It's this apparent absence, this apparent inactivity of God in their lives. God for them this God who does no good, but nor does he do harm, has become for the people of God a do-nothing God. And I think this is a space in which so many of us find ourselves in, that we go throughout our days and throughout our weeks, and we say, where is God present? Not that God is actively against you, in the way that his judgment is being brought on you or that you feel like God has become an oppressive force for you. But we say, where is God's presence? Because he's doing no good, but he's not doing any harm. 
God has simply become a do-nothing God. So Zephaniah, he focuses his prophecy on these people specifically, that these are the people God is going to seek out, the people who believe God is going to do no good, the people who have experienced that God is going to do no harm. So this is a time and a culture in which Israel is surrounded by all these other nations. And what we see in these nations is this influence of worshiping idols, worshiping other gods. And what this means and what this looks like for the people of God is that they're witnessing other people worshiping gods that fulfill and serve a specific function. So if you and your wife are trying to have a baby and you're having a hard time having a baby, you go and you pray to the god or goddess of fertility. If you are at a point in your life where you need lots of grain and you're hoping for a robust harvest, you go and you pray to the God of the harvest because this is the function. If you're at a point where you need to trade in your horse on the lease that you have and you've still got about 18 months to go and you're running a little high on your mileage, but hopefully this is going to work out, you go and you pray to the God of favorable bartering skills. This is the kind of world they lived in that the gods that they served and the gods that they worshiped, they were not good in the sense that we know God to be good. They were useful. So the temptation was everywhere for Israel to always see the God that they worshiped as useful as well. There's a scene in C.S. Lewis's story, The Magician's Nephew, when the main characters, Diggory and Polly, these two children that are friends, and Diggory's uncle, his name is Uncle Andrew, and the witch. How many of you read The, the Magician's Nephew? Not enough of you have read The Magician's Nephew. So given the title The Magician's Nephew, you kind of think that the uncle, the magician, is a good character. He's not, spoiler, he's a very bad character. But there's this scene where Diggory and Polly and Uncle Andrew and the witch, they've been moving through these worlds and they stumble into this world. And this world is being sung into existence. And they feel this sort of creative force and creative energy that's flowing through this entire world. And what we see is that Narnia, the world that's being created, is full of life. C.S. Lewis uses this line, there are divine waters flowing throughout Narnia. There are these creatures that are coming into being, and the witch's immediate first response is to take a broken piece of a lamppost and try to kill Aslan the lion, the one who is singing everything into existence. And what happens is this broken piece of lamppost falls to the ground and it gets buried. And what springs up in its place is a fully formed and functional lamppost growing out of the ground like a tree. And what we see is Uncle Andrew say to the children, what was America to this? The commercial possibilities of this country are unbounded. Bring a few old bits of scrap iron here, bury them, and up they come as brand new railway engines, battleships, anything that you please. 
I shall be a millionaire. And I wonder how often we do this with God. That God offers us life and he offers us life more abundantly. And in response, we turn God into some sort of parlor trick or genie in the sky that he offers us divine waters and we instead want to grow battleships and become millionaires. But hear this, what God wants for you is always better than what you want God to do for you. The future that God has imagined for you is always better than the future that you can imagine for yourself. Our role as Christians is to learn how to participate in this divine life, to jump into the divine waters and let this stream carry us where it will, rather than try to bury the metal and to grow the ships so that we can become millionaires. God is not useful to us in this way. So again, the Israelites, not only do they accuse God of being a do-nothing God, but part of not being able to see where God is at work is really simply an inability to recognize how God is at work. So for Zephaniah, God couldn't recognize his people. Remember, he throws Jerusalem in with the whole lot of all the other nations because they've become so corrupt that he can't even distinguish them from his own people. And so this is a time when the people of God, again, are surrounded by idols. They're being tempted to think about God as useful. And there's another story in which God is sought out to be useful. And we see this happening in Exodus 33. Most of us are familiar with this story. It's the story in which Moses comes and he says to the Lord, show me your glory. Show me your glory. To come to God with this kind of request is a little odd because what Moses is asking of God when he says, show me your glory, he's really saying, show me your boundaries and your edges. Show me the ways in which you are useful. Show me the function that you fulfill in my life. Show me your glory. And how many times do we make this kind of request to God? That so often our prayers and our petitions that we bring to the Lord, they turn into this sort of, show me your glory. Are you useful in this way? I'm running out of money. God, I need more money. Show me your glory. Are you the kind of God who just simply provides me with more? God, the other political party is in power. Show me your glory. Are you the kind of God who meddles in national politics? Because I'm afraid. God, show me your glory because the world needs fixing. And aren't you a God who just comes and fixes everything? To say, show me your glory is to say, God, show me how you are useful to me. Show me your boundaries. Show me your edges. And this is how God responds. If you remember the story, he covers Moses' face. And he says, I'm going to pass by you, but you shall see my back. It's like God is saying to Moses, the best that you're going to do is to see where I've been. 
our gospel text today from Mark chapter 5, we see a similar story. We see a woman that's heard about Jesus. She's heard about the things he's been doing, the eyes that he's been opening, the hungry bellies that he's been filling, the miracles he's been doing. She had heard about Jesus. And she comes up behind him and she touches his cloak. I think it's interesting that both the woman and Moses, they really desire the same thing. They really want to see God's glory. She had heard about Jesus. She wanted to see it for herself. She wanted to see if this power that she'd heard about, if this is going to be useful for her. Is it going to work on me? Moses is coming. God, show me your glory. I have a restless people. And they want to know what their future looks like. So show me your glory. But what's interesting is that neither of them are really sure what they're going to see if they receive it. But they have a sense that they know God has done something. And maybe that can be useful for them in the future. So in both cases, God has to let them steal up on him, so to speak. God has to let them sneak up behind him because it seems that they could not endure the face-to-face encounter with what they're really after. But what we see is that both of them leave transformed by this experience. They both leave with a future that's now different because they've seen something like the glory of God, but it's not quite the glory itself. Because God reveals glory in unusual ways. God seems to reveal his glory in ways that we don't always recognize it. And so even when God is moving and even when God is acting and even when God is working on our behalf, the temptation for us is to believe that you will do no good, nor will you do harm. So throughout Zephaniah's prophecy, he starts with this reversal of Genesis 1. We looked at that, where the good, ordered, perfect creation that God has put into existence is descending back into darkness and chaos and to disorder. But by the end, we see a total restoration of creation. We see that the nations are brought together as a unified family. And it's as if he's saying that when God acts, the only thing that really gets destroyed are our divisions. The only thing that gets judged are all the ways in which we try to separate ourselves from other people, to say, well, at least I'm not like them. God's consuming fire, his judgment on the nations is actually that they're going to become one nation. Let's stop here for a moment and talk about about judgment. I don't have time to do this, but we're going to do this because judgment is all over the minor prophets. I think the only way we can faithfully address the issue of judgment is to see ourselves as the only ones being judged. I think so, so often it's easy for us to imagine a hell that's filled with other people. 
von Balthasar draws this image of saying, the only person you ought to be able to imagine as hell is yourself. But what we see is that God's judgment, when we are actually face to face with it, what do we see? It's that God is merciful. It's that God is really revealing to us the truest parts of ourselves that we try to divide ourselves from. It's as if God's judgment is really him saying, you have to deal with all of the things in your life that have not yet been conformed to the image of Christ. And part of that means that we're never able to rightly judge one another. We have to stop. We have to realize that God's judgments, one, are always good. That even when we think we're being gathered together in a consuming fire, what this fire does is unify us. There's a theologian, he was a, um, a German, his name is Michael Wischelgrad, and his family escaped from Nazi Germany. And he says this, to be near God is to become a friend of death because of the terrible danger that surrounds all human intimacy with God. The point here is that God is for us. And he is so for us that if necessary, he'll be against us. I'm going to say that again. God is for us. And he is so for us that if necessary, he'll be against us. Or at least our idea of who us is. But even him being against us is for our own good. Because God is always drawing bigger circles of who is defined by us. That just when we think we know who we belong to, God's always drawing bigger circles. And the people that we're most sure are excluded are the people that he brings in. Remember, in this prophecy, it's the oppressed, it's the downtrodden, it's the poor, it's the outcast that God draws into himself and exalts in a place of honor. So the trick for us as, follow, as faithful followers of Jesus Christ is being able to recognize where and to whom God is present. At the close of the prophecy, we receive this image of God gathering to himself the poor, the oppressed, the refugee, the stranger, the immigrant, the downtrodden. And what I would want to say to us today is that when we have a hard time recognizing God, and doesn't it seem difficult these days, when we have a hard time recognizing where God is working and moving and present in the world, that we ought to look for the people that he has promised to be near. In that way, the poor and the oppressed and the marginalized, the refugee, these are not problems to be solved. They are people to join. If you think that God is a do-nothing God, go and see. Go and see with the poor. Go and see with the refugee. Go and see with the oppressed just how present God is to them.
Because at the end of the day, the only judgment that matters is recognizing Jesus in the least of these. Remember in Matthew 25, Jesus separates the sheep from the goats. This is the judgment at the end of all judgments. And in Matthew 25, we see these familiar words in which he says to the people, come to me or depart from me. And he paints a picture of what they did or did not do with their lives. But here's what's interesting, is that the faithful and the unfaithful say the same thing to him. Where did I see you? Where did I see you with the poor? Where did I see you with the hungry when I was feeding them? Where did I see you with the naked when I was clothing them? On the other hand, I never went to the poor because I didn't recognize you with the poor. I didn't see you with the hungry. I didn't go to the hungry because I didn't see you with the hungry. But this is the judgment that gets placed on all of us, which is really a judgment of omission and inactivity. So yes, we ought to search for the places and the people in which we recognize and see that God is moving, but it's more important to trust that when he appears and when he acts, he brings nothing but freedom and jubilee. So we ought to rush to care for the hungry and the thirsty and the stranger, the naked, the sick, and the prisoner, because Jesus is, of course, with them. But we go also to create spaces where God's kingdom and his reign are already welcome. This is why we come to the table. We come to participate in the celebration feast that God makes ready for everyone. So this is the gospel according to Zephaniah. You say, I'm a do-nothing God, but my day's coming. I'll act, and when I'm done, nothing left but jubilee. Amen.